Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Never Strays Far, the occasional rambling podcast hosted by myself, Ned Bolting, and my colleague, David Miller. It's brought to you in association with Chapter 3 and The Roadbook, And this autumn, we're pleased to announce an exciting free-to-enter competition with four unique prizes up for grabs. Chapter 3 have donated an exclusive face mask, as well as a £250 voucher to be redeemed at their store, at their leisure and their pleasure. And the Roadbook are offering signed and numbered 2018 and 19 volumes, as well as the opportunity to win my handwritten commentary notes from the 2020 Tour de France, complete with coffee stains and indecipherable scribbles, but beautifully presented in a hardback. To enter the competition, simply go to theroadbook.co.uk. I talk to you mostly alone, although some members of my household might disagree. The day after... Uh, the World Championship road race uh, stuff has come to an end in Imola and uh, um, I have run out of things to take my attention away from my imminent operation on a broken arm which um, has been postponed today and uh, I don't know when it's going to happen but I'm, I have a bag that should be packed and uh, in my uh, hallway ready to go but the fact that I'm not under a knife or on a table at the moment uh, gives me an opportunity at least just to reflect and you listeners uh, a little bit on what we saw in particular yesterday in the men's road race championships they were great championships I kind of uh, regretted the fact that uh, needs must they were reduced only to featuring the men's and women's elite time trial and the men's and women's elite uh, road race championships it was part of the rhythm of a week of uh, the world champs involving <coughs> the junior uh, men's titles as well as the under 23 uh, events as well is that it kind of uh, allows the spotlight to fall on these young riders who will surely go on to make their name in the years to come and that's a um, a really great opportunity I think for us to cast an eye into the future although as we've often discussed on this podcast the future seems to have kind of kaleidoscoped and telescoped right down into the present um, but that was the only thing really that was lacking I think from the world championships other than the absence of a uh, crowd to any great extent, um, that didn't seem to matter too much either, as we've often discussed on this podcast. Uh, instead, I thought the uh, Italian region of uh, um, Emilia-Romagna played its part magnificently. I had no idea it was that beautiful, um, really strikingly different from other regions of northern Italy. And um, you'll all have seen by now that fabulous ridge along which... Uh, the riders all um, passed, which was picked out by a helicopter flying at low altitude and enabled those initially those fantastic shots of Anna van der Breggen in her uh, wonderful solo victory in the road race. Um, and then latterly, the, some great shots of the, from the men's road race as well of uh, 
the Belgian team going over the top and uh, of Julian Alaphilippe all on his own in his winning move. Um, so you know it all, but just to recap and refresh your memories, the uh, women's individual time trial title went uh, to Anna van der Breggen and it was uh, a bit of a, yeah, it, it was one of those where you think, what would have happened if Chloe Dygert had stayed upright? And I think that, um, you know, the, the generally we would have to acknowledge that Chloe Dygert is the best in the world in that discipline by some margin, actually, and had done nothing wrong up until the point where she uh, seemingly did something wrong um, and crashed on that bend. There was a lot of outcry about the uh, nature of the padding on the on the uh, protective barriers by the side of the road. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure all of it was justified, really. It seemed to me that um, the the dangerous part of the bend had been properly protected and that um, what happened to Digert with that speed wobble was pretty anomalous, actually, and hard to recover from. Uh, but what really matters, I think, is the fact that Digert lost her opportunity to win back-to-back titles. And um, more than that, she uh, has sustained pretty dramatic injuries, although... Uh, they appear only, in inverted commas, to be flesh wounds. And uh, I do hope she makes a smart and uh, rapid recovery from those injuries. Um, <clears throat> well, the men's title went to uh, Ghana, Filippo Ghana, which is uh, no big surprise to anyone. I don't think he's followed his progress, uh, you know, as he graduates now increasingly from his stellar performance, his domination, you have to say, of the track in the individual pursuits to uh, transferring that skill set across to the road. His first... Uh, road title I doubt it'll be his last he looks markedly different on a bike I think from other contemporaries I mean every every rider looks slightly different and they have their own kind of hallmark signature position on a bike but Ganna's is is uh very individual he's super skinny incredibly elegant and I wonder um what the years to come will will contain for him in terms of his potential, because he's another one, isn't he? Let's put him in the same mix as all those other young talents who are now no longer knocking on the door, but in full ownership of the keys to the house. That is this extended metaphor that is road uh, racing in all its form, in all its forms. Um, The Dutch dominated the women's event, uh, road race event, as you kind of thought they would. And it was a Dutch 1-2, which is about right, really. Van der Breggen's in fantastic form. And it's remarkable to think she's about to turn her back on this form at the end of the year and pursue her post-racing career as a a, a director sportif. Uh, That'll be very interesting to watch. Um, But she's almost never ridden better than the way she's riding at the moment. So that's remarkable. And Annemiek van Vluten, who knows how different it might have been had she uh, not been riding with a broken wrist that was um, that was uh, obviously hampering her to some extent. And it, it might have been um, might have been a different story and it might have been even more interesting than it was had those two actually battled it out between them all the way to the finish. Um, so that was the story of the, the women's road race. The men's road race was won in 30 seconds flat by Julien Alaphilippe, who waited and waited and waited and attacked at precisely the point which everybody knew that Julian Alaphilippe was going to attack. Just like he's done in the past, just like he did most recently on stage two, on the Col d'Ez, uh, on uh, at the Tour de France, everybody knew he was going to attack then and nobody could do anything about it. And likewise, on Sunday, everybody knew he was going to attack then. And for those of you wondering out loud, some of you on, on the internet, why didn't Van Aert follow his move? The answer was Van Aert couldn't follow his move. Um, and what was it, the eight seconds or so 
gap that he took over the top of that climb was critical because if it had been four or five seconds or three or four seconds smaller than it actually was, it might have been a different story. But the fact of the matter is it wasn't. And it was enough for Julien Alaphilippe to throw the chase into turmoil behind, put them physically into the red and um, play with their, mess with their heads and get the race won. And from there on, with the benefit of hindsight, there was only ever going to be one winner. And with that in mind, um, my colleague Pete Kenyuk kind of retrospectively wondered whether what we'd seen from Alaphilippe riding at the Tour de France at kind of 80% or 85% of the version of Alaphilippe we saw yesterday makes sense. And whether or not he knew all along that unlike a lot of his competitors, he was actually keeping his powder dry for the road race championships that came, let's not forget, just one weekend after the end of the Tour de France. If that's the case, that was some forward planning. Um, But it did remind me of a bit of writing that I want to share with you um, that we commissioned and printed in last year's roadbook by Philippe Auclair, who's uh, one of the best sports writers uh, in the world and has been for a number of years writing both in French which is his native tongue, and in English, which is his adoptive native tongue, since he's been living here for decades, writing about uh, cricket and football, and not that often, actually, about cycling, which is one of his first sports and one of his deepest loves. So it was my great pleasure last year to ask Philippe Auclair to write a profile of Julien Alaphilippe um, in in relation to the way he lit up the Tour de France last year. And... um, I've read it out loud in the form of a short audio chapter, if you want to put it that way. And um, it follows after this. But what I think is startling is that even though this writing is a year old, all the lessons contained within are equally applicable to the Julien Alaphilippe 2020 variation, which we just saw uh, claim the rainbow bands in handsome style. So that's enough of me rambling on. Uh, Afterwards, you can hear me rambling on, but not in my words, uh, the words of Philippe Auclair and... uh, his essay, La Vie en Jaune, um, taken from the 2019 Roadbook. Enjoy those words, and next time I'm sure I will be joined by David Miller, and hopefully I will have a new and functional arm. La Vie en Jaune, Julien Alaphilippe relights the French fire by Philippe Auclair. The odds seemed distinctly, well, odd. Almost headingly 1981 odd. The world's top-ranked cyclist was 200 to 1 to finish in the Tour's top three, despite the absences of pre-race favourites Chris Froome and Tom Dumoulin at the Grand Depart in Brussels, and the consensus that this was going to be one of the most open Grand Boucle in a generation. It was as if the cycling world had decided that Julien Alaphilippe was too much of one thing, a barely controllable, borderline crazy baroudeur, and too little of another, a rouleur grimpeur capable of staying with the best specialists in high-altitude stages, of which there would be plenty this year, to entertain any hope of upsetting the established order. Julien himself seemed to agree. I'm not even thinking of the GC, he kept saying, his fans nodding in the background, Though Julien had few equals, if any, when it came to blowing a race open. When it came to controlling it, well, he'd never shown any evidence that he'd be capable of doing it, or that he'd even had the inclination to do so. 
It was as if the magnificent form he'd shown all season counted for nothing. He'd won three classics, the Primavera among them, as well as stages in the Vuelta a San Juan, including a time trial, the Tour of the Basque Country, a bunch sprint at Terreno Adriatico, and further success at the Criterium du Dauphiné. As if his constant linear progression from outstanding cyclocross specialist to terror of the peloton did not signal that here was a rider of exceptional class. What's more, at 27, he was only now entering the best years of his career. He was at that age when many riders who would go on to become tour winners had just started to reveal their true potential. Bradley Wiggins and Geraint Thomas, to name but two, champions who had achieved far less on the road at this stage of their development than the Frenchman had done already. It didn't make any sense to me. Why wasn't Julien even spoken of as an outsider when Vincenzo Nibali could get a mention? The answer was simple. Julien was Julien, and that was that. But what that really was, we only found out in the blessed three weeks that followed. By the end, on the Champs-Élysées, Julien is Julien meant something quite different, even to those of us who'd been besotted with him since he brought glorious chaos to the 2015 Ardennes Classics. The fifth-placed rider, the bookmakers have got it right after all, if by a whisker, had won the tour, somehow. Julien was not born into a cycling family, even if he was mentored from an early age by his cousin Franck, himself a decent amateur rider, and if his younger brother Brion, a sprinter, has also become a professional with pro-imo Nicolas Roux, and if the youngest of the three siblings, 15-year-old Léo, rides for the local team where Julien debuted, l'étant cycliste Montmaro-Montluçon. There were no cycling posters in Julien's boyhood bedroom. No July afternoons spent glued to the television screen when the tour was on. No hero worship of les géants de la route. True heroes were hard to find on the slopes of Lab d'Huez at the time, it should be said. In 2010, the year in which Julien achieved his first major success, second place in the Junior World Cyclocross Championships, Alberto Contador finished first in the Tour and Denis Menchov third, both men being disqualified for doping by the Court for Arbitration in Sport a year and a half later. The family's true passion was music, not cycling anyway. Father Jacques, known as Jo, is now retired but became something of a celebrity in the region when his six-piece band was invited to the opening act for a Johnny Halliday concert. It's quite difficult to find a British equivalent for the kind of groupe de balle that Joe led on countless nights in the community halls of the villages and small market towns of the Allier and the Berry. Pub group won't do. Their repertoire would have touched on pop and rock and roll on occasion, but mostly stuck to the French variété genre. Nor was Joe a travelling 20th century troubadour, an itinerant guitar-carrying poet. In the pre-internet rural France of the 1990s, these bands helped stave off the boredom of the small-town working class on Saturday nights, sometimes showing up at local discotheques, others on the village square or at wedding receptions, wherever there was money to be made playing covers of the hits of the country's most popular singers. It might not have been glamorous, but it was a job, though not the best-paid job it should be added. Summer holidays abroad were out of the question, and the family had to wait until Julien was in his teens to take him to the seaside for the first time. Until then, it had been enough to visit the campsite by the Étang de Goule, a small lake situated at the border of the Cher and Allier département, a little under 40 miles from the family's modest home in Montluçon, where the boys would spend their days sliding into the cold water, swimming, boating, fishing, and more generally fooling around with their friends without a care in the world. To hear Julien speak of these holidays today, 
is to hear someone evoke paradise. The eldest of the Alaphilippe brothers could have joined his father's band, despite his reluctance to learn solfeggio, even more boring than school in his own appreciation. He had a good ear, excellent hand-feet coordination, and became a bit of a sensation in Montluçon, where it is said that traffic stopped when it passed the stage where the teenage Julien was playing the drums during the Fête de la Musique, the festival that is held everywhere in France on the 21st of June. His choice of instrument was revealing. Anything to spend the inexhaustible energy that flowed through him, whom all his friends described as hyperactive then as now. This included cycling, but not rugby, which he tried once. One match was enough for him to discover that his slight frame did not make him a natural for that game. It was not the kind of regimented cycling he'd have practised at a local club, even if he also did that from the age of eight, but the dare-you wheelies and slides of proper BMX bandits, which is exactly what Julien and Brian were, causing some trepidation among the locals as they spent hour upon hour practising new tricks. It was about fun, le plaisir, the joy, the risk-taking, the fooling about with friends, and soon enough the adrenaline of victory. Wondrously, it has never ceased to be so. We who see him racing today could have guessed it easily enough, as it is still about all these silly, priceless things for him. The champion is still the kid who, at the age of 11, told his mum that he felt like saying hello to his uncle in saint amand Montant, jumped on his oversized bicycle, a bottle of water slipped in his rucksack, rode the 50 kilometres that separated him from Tonton, and then phoned home to tell an astonished mother that he'd arrived and was safe and well. I think this is when my parents really understood that I was madly hungry for it, he told the French magazine Pedale. As it got more serious, the can't-sit-still kid showed that he could ride harder and faster than most in his region. The family purchased, on credit, a second-hand cyclocross bike that, while far too big for either brother, would be used by Julien and Brion, the former having to raise the saddle by several notches when it was his turn to use it, as the younger Alaphilippe always raced first. For me, it was like a Ferrari. It didn't kill us, is Julien's way of putting it. When he reached 16, the time to leave school, he naturally chose a two-year apprenticeship in a cycle shop where he learned all there is to be learned about the mechanics of the machine that would transform him into a national hero. His talent was such that he'd already represented France in international cyclocross competitions by then. But this made no difference to the way he was treated by the shop's owner, a family friend who demanded that his apprentice turned up on time at work on Monday mornings regardless of which country he'd spent the weekend racing in. Julien never disappointed him. Everyone who came across him at this time seems to have their own story to tell about this teenager who was unlike any other with his old bike and his four-year-old helmet, as described by Steve Chanel, now the boss of the Chazal Canyon team. Julien's diet left a lot to be desired. A former teammate, Julien Gonnier, told how he had once surprised Alaphilippe about to wolf down a tartine of Nutella after a team dinner, in the middle of a competition of course. In 2010, when some doctors told him that his future in cycling was in doubt after he'd suffered a serious knee injury, with no pro team ready to take a risk on him, despite his second place in the 2009 Junior World Cyclocross Championships, he signed on for the French Army Club in Saint-Germain-en-Laye, a stone's throw from the PSG training ground. He lived in barracks there for three years, at the end of which, thanks to the support of an understanding officer, adjutant David Lima da Costa, He'd recovered to such a degree that he beat all records in the evaluation tests set up for him by Patrick Lefebvre, the general manager of the Omega Pharma Quickstep, who signed him on the spot. Yes, Julien Alaphilippe's parabola in the world of cycling is distinctly eccentric.
He did not have a wattage calculator installed on his bike until he was 25. At the same time, he was also ready to inflict torment on himself on his machine, which led some coaches to cut down on his preparation schedule, as they knew Alaphilippe would double the prescribed dose anyway. In 2016, still convalescing from a bout of glandular fever that had forced him to abandon the previous year's World Championships midway through the race, his eagerness to regain fitness was such that he covered 315 kilometres in a single training sortie, despite it being one of the very first steps in his rehabilitation programme. Julien Alaphilippe was born hungry, hungry for victory, for the unique explosion of joy when crossing the line arms aloft, but also hungry for hunger's sake. The third stage of the 2019 Tour de France was tailor-made for a puncheur like Alaphilippe, with its rolling profile, its sharp, short category 3 and 4 climbs. The last of these, the Côte de Moutigny, hit 12.2% over a 900-metre segment, the perfect launching pad for a rider who so loves the murals of the Ardennes classics. So much so, in fact, that he'd already told everyone that he intended to attack that day and gave himself a good chance of winning. It was an opinion shared by almost everyone in the peloton and those who followed him. Julien was as good as his word. He caught up with escapee Tim Wellens, left him for dead at the top of the cot and arrived in Epernay 26 seconds ahead of the bunch, a large enough advantage for him to be the first French rider to claim the yellow jersey since Tony Gallopin five years previously. What followed has passed into legend. The acceleration at the Planche des Belles where it had been predicted he might crack. Too late for making up the time needed to prevent Giulio Ciccone from taking the maillot jaune, but brutal enough to gain a few seconds on Quintana, Fulsang and Bernal. The late attack in stage 8 to Saint-Étienne, where he reclaimed the lead. The stupendous 1-2 of stages 13 and 14, with first place in the time trial, and second behind Pino to the top of the Tourmalet, one of the Tour's holiest climbs. Alaphilippe had held on. Alaphilippe had actually gained time on Geraint Thomas, Stephen Kreisveik and the others. Alaphilippe was a week away from accomplishing the unthinkable, despite having no domestique to pace him up the coals. This was supposed to be impossible, the equivalent of a T20 slogger scoring a test triple century on a wearing pitch against the best bowling on the planet. My finish in the top three bet was beginning to look like a sound investment. But how had the impossible come to pass? Naturally, while almost all of France, and not just France in fact, had fallen in love with its daring new champion, there were quite a few who, with a wink and a raised eyebrow, asked that very question. How had the impossible come to pass? Expecting all of us to guess the obvious answer. This was cycling after all. A guy who can't climb, sprints up the tourmalet. A guy who can't time trial, beats Thomas and everyone else against the clock. Another wink, another raised eyebrow. It's quite clear what your champ is up to, you gullible fools. Everybody knows it. It would be tempting at this point to name some of those men who attempted to pour poison in the cup we were raising to Alaphilippe's success. I certainly haven't forgotten them, particularly the one who sold his doubts, certainties in fact, to television chat shows, and who is well known for having been linked himself to one of the worst offenders in the business. Le Monde thought it a good idea to publish an especially snide piece about the use of ketones a legal supplement by the de Koenig riders, which also managed to equate the lack of positive drugs tests on the tour with a lack of seriousness in the fight against doping in the peloton. They'd got it all wrong, in substance as in timing. The guy who couldn't climb had, how could they have forgotten, won two mountain stages in the previous tour, 
one at Le Grand Bonon in the Alps, the other at Bagnères de Luchon in the Pyrenees, earning himself the polka dot jersey, which he'd also claimed in the Criterion du Dauphiné preceding the 2019 tour. He'd trained at altitude for the first time in his life. He'd shed weight for the single purpose of being even more competitive on the climbs, again for the first time in his life. The profile of the time trial in Poe had suited him to a T, with a steep uphill section at the finish where his astonishing capacity to accelerate on the toughest of ramps allowed him to create a decisive gap on Geraint Thomas. He'd won a very similar TT in the 2017 edition of Paris-Nice, ahead of riders who were supposed to be vastly superior to him in this discipline, Alberto Contador, Michael Matthews and Richie Porte. The impossible had never been unattainable, especially when taking into account the most potent of performance enhancers, the maillot jaune. Just ask Thomas Vöckler, another puncher, although nowhere near as talented as Alaphilippe, who found the resources to stay with the very best climbers to the Plateau de Bay and Luzardiden in the 2011 tour, only losing the precious tunic three stages before the final dash on the Champs-Élysées. The cynics soon had no bitter bone left to chew and spit out to the public. Alaphilippe didn't crack or surrender, but sheer mental and physical exhaustion finally caught up with him right when he'd started to believe he could achieve the miracle himself. Tongue hanging, shoulders rocking, swearing at himself, he was distanced in the last two alpine stages. Time after time, he'd found himself isolated at the front of the race, surrounded by Team Ineos, Jumbo Visma and Movistar climbers, until the tens of thousands of voices cheering him forwards were no longer enough to sustain him. He might have held on in a different year, on a less mountainous tour, but not this time. This was the price he had to pay for his generosity. In that, if he must be a musketeer, he should not be D'Artagnan, but Portos, even if his physique is more Douglas Fairbanks or Errol Flynn than Gérard Depardieu. D'Artagnan, for all his panache and brio, is also capable of meanness and has a sourness in him that is the fruit of an ambition that ultimately does not rise above the mediocre. By contrast, the huge Portos, for all his follies, represents all that is good in a good soul, even unto death. When Alaphilippe states that nothing is dearer to him than giving happiness to people, as he did when he offered his yellow jersey to a child shivering with cold at the end of the Valois stage, the fools are those who choose not to believe him. There are not many sportsmen or women you would trust in such a way. Only those who have left the unique gift of sharing their joy and their pain with their public, and in cycling the pain counts just as much as anything. Luis Ocaña was one of these riders whom we suffered with, as was Raymond Poulidor before him. Like the farmer's son from Limousin, Alaphilippe is a child of the France éternelle, the France profonde, which, even in the 21st century, retains such an allure in French minds. I know that I, a Londoner for three decades, became a Frenchman again during the tour. It's not just being reminded of the beauty of my native country by those loving helicopter camera shots that caress every curve of the Vosges mountains and linger on the stonework of another castle or monastery in a region I swear I'll visit one day. It's a communion with an older, better, or so we'd like to think self, which has the power to move us to tears at times. Alaphilippe fits in this emotional landscape as neatly as the horses galloping in a field next to the ribbon of riders. There haven't been many such riders, and to be frank, until he placed his own brand of dynamite under the tour caravan, not many thought we'd ever see another any time soon.
The lack of credit and appreciation that Sky and Team Ineos have in countries other than Britain isn't solely due to the contempt in which their methods are held by traditionalists and romantics. Minimal gains. Welcome to the dream. And the way in which their tactical mastery, the thoroughness of their preparation and their huge financial resources combine to create a machine that aims not to compete against but to crush their supposed rivals by eliminating all chance of failure. It's also that, following in the wake of Lance Armstrong, the cruelest of riders, they'd seemingly erased suffering from a sport that lives by it, at least in its own mythology. Philippe, in those last mountain stages, was nothing but pain, and its corollary, courage. And by taking us along, through each excruciating metre of the ascents, he also humanised those who rode alongside and ahead of him. What a gift this has been to us, to the Tour, and to cycling. It is not sure that Alaphilippe will ever come that close again to becoming the first French Tour winner since Bernardino. The particular context of this edition, which lacked a clear patron, represented an opportunity that might be denied to him in the coming years, especially now that the most powerful team in the world has found another leader in the prodigious Egan Bernal. The Tour organisers will have their say in this, obviously. We still don't know what the 2020 itinerary has in store, except that its first two stages, both of them loops in the hilly Niçois hinterland, should suit the Frenchman. As to the rest, we'll have to wait. And how could he top what he's already achieved, which is riding the greatest ever individual tour by a loser in living memory? By winning it and nothing else. But that's surely impossible. Isn't it? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 